Good morning, church. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. I want to wish you a happy Easter. I think I have a, a, a fun talk for us for this Easter Sunday. Easter uh, for the church, it's a celebration of Jesus' resurrection from the death he died for our sins three days prior. And the Bible says that the resurrection of Jesus is for the Christian, the cornerstone of their faith, because it validates everything Jesus did and everything he said. And it makes Jesus not just a good example. He didn't just do things that we should do, but he did it instead of us. So he becomes our savior. He becomes our hero. And the resurrection validates that. And the question I want us to ask and address today is the question, is Jesus and his death and resurrection, that is Christianity, what we call Christianity, is it robust and relevant enough to take on the full weight of our life? You think about your life for a second, just how real that is, how day-to-day that is, how many surprises there have been in your life, and all of the challenges you've faced or are facing now the conflict, the pain. Can Christianity take that on? Is there a kind of effectiveness and truthfulness? Is it really able to integrate reality and be an actual resource to us? Can, in other words, can God handle the real risks of life. And if you've been somebody who's been a Christian for a while, look back on your life. How has your faith, how has the person of Jesus, how has that been helpful to you? What place does it have in your life? I have two points today that I want to share with us. The peace of Christ and the presence of of Christ in addressing these questions. Okay, ready? Okay, first, the peace of Christ. We'll start with verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. The Greek word here for peace is the Greek translation of actually the Hebrew word, shalom, Uh, which is just a normal Jewish greeting. It's the way they said hello. It's like us and how are you? Uh, It's so funny. Sometimes I'll say hi and they'll say, oh, fine. How about you? (laughs) We're so used to this greeting. But Jesus brought new meaning to this word. He talked about peace as if it was something he was bringing to earth for the first time to his disciples. He said, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives. It's entirely different than anything you've experienced before. And I'm promising it to you. It's yours. It's unique. And it's powerful. I want you to have it. Now, uh, as somebody uh, who became a Christian later on in life, I just loved this idea of peace. You know, it's it's sort of like this whole beauty pageant deal. You have to love peace. And... um, Because, you know, you have to say world peace. 
But it was a primary draw for me as a person, you know, with some trauma and with history in my uh, uh, in my childhood. I had this kind of rage and loneliness going on in me. And when I heard that Jesus promises peace, I wanted it. I'm not sure what I intuited about it, but I definitely wanted it. And it, it was kind of a stand-in for my idealism, the ideals I had about love and healing and the kind of person that... Uh, I would be and the kind of ways that I would be loved and the kind of great things I'd be able to accomplish. And it was all wrapped, up, wrapped around this promise of peace. Now, uh, as a pastor, I'm not sure how I feel. I have kind of mixed feelings about this word peace and what it stands for. And uh, it's kind of a boring word to me. And it reminds me that for a lot of people as a pastor, sometimes I can often be perceived as a sort of a, a false priest or even a, a boring one, that I'm the one who does the prayers. I'm typecast as the one who makes closing remarks or uh, says nice things. And I'm kind of convenient and maybe kind of a necessary evil, an additive, kind of like pepper spray or car insurance or attorneys. You know, you're glad you have it in case you need it, but hopefully you don't. I'm not sure as a pastor in our society, in America, I'm useful beyond ceremonies. I'm just kind of somebody who brings a greeting of peace. I stand for somebody maybe who loves peace. But is that all peace is good for? Is that what Jesus meant when he said, peace be with you? How do you see Christianity? What is the faith worth to you? What is Jesus, just a nice person? What is is church about? Just a place you go to feel a little bit better? How robust is the Christian faith? Um, This is Easter, obligatory Susie stories. Susie is... Uh, my wife of 17 years, and she's somebody that I pursued for four years prior to uh, marriage. And she said no to me for four years. I was an obsessive person. I uh, know how to pine and uh, sort of uh, obsess very well. I remember collecting stacks of photographs, stealing them from uh, friends who took group pictures and things, and without, you know, their knowing I would steal these pictures and, and pile them up and look through them on a daily basis and just, <clears throat> I know, it's creepy. It's, <laughs> hey, we all have our dark sides. But I can see now that, uh, you know, I just, was crazy about her, and I was not just about her because I didn't know her very well as a person, but I was in love with the idea of loving her. I loved love, and I, I loved... Well, actually, I loved three specific things about her. I remember three times that I just was like, I want to marry her. The first time was her mom visited us in uh, our dorm room a freshman year. She was a freshman. I was a sophomore. And she drove from Chicago to Ann Arbor, and she brought everything you could possibly want in a Korean picnic. And she called all of Susie's friends and acquaintances into, crammed into her dorm room, and she fed everybody. And I remember thinking, who is this woman? She's just like a magician, just bringing just unlimited food out of this top hat that she brought. I wanted to be in on that. (laughs) And I thought, 
That's it. That's the woman. A second time was, you know, Ann Arbor is a flat and large campus. And so a lot of people biked. And so I found myself as a relatively handy person working on a lot of bikes. I remember this one time, it wasn't my bike. I don't think it was Susie's bike, but she just sat there with me for a couple of hours, just talking to me from across the other side of the bike while the bike was upside down in my dorm room. She just chatted with me, wasting her time while I was working on this bike. I remember thinking, this is so cool. Like, we don't have to do anything fancy. She's just hanging out with me. She's giving me the gift of her presence. And she's not even talking a lot. She's just kind of just sitting there being with me. I thought, I want in on this. I I like this style. I I can do this. I want more of this. And that was the second time. The third time was when we were at the Renaissance Center in Detroit for our annual InterVarsity Christian Fellowship retreat. And I had just, with a bunch of other people, stayed up all night sharing all of my horrible uh, double life stories from uh, high school. And uh, Susie just cut through the crowd, looked at me in the eyes, and with just piercing but accepting uh, gaze, she said, but Peter, that's not you anymore, is it? I thought, oh my gosh, I want that. I want somebody to look at me like that all the time. Also, it was her crazy hair in her hands. I liked her hair in her hands. But I fell in love with this girl. In other words, these ideals, these these imagined scenarios got me through the door. But what I didn't know was that we would live actual real life as a married couple. And life did not hold back. And though I loved her and I wanted to love her and I pursued her, all of that pales in comparison to who she has become to me over these 17 years and seasons of life. And I would not trade how I got her to what I actually experienced once we were married. We've learned how to grow up together because we got married relatively young. She was 21 and I was 20. I just turned 24. And uh, we've learned how to be together. We've learned how to solve problems, which is the biggest problem of all because we don't know how to even tackle problems. And now what we have is so very, very precious. And I've discovered that She is somebody, not just that I wanted, but somebody who can really handle, bear the full weight of all that we call life together. There's an integrity to her structure that can bear the weight. Now, I tell these stories because I think it's very easy to be a Christian And say you are a believer, say you have faith, you go to church, you kind of jump through all the right hoops, and there's kind of muscle memory built in it for you, but you really have not fully put on the weight of your life on Jesus. And you don't know that he can handle more than some of the compartmentalized things that you bring to Jesus. On the other hand, it's so easy, I think, to be a non-Christian, somebody who stands outside of this whole church faith thing, and many of you may be here today, and you just think, what is Christianity? Is it just sort of conservatism, or is it just people who are delusional, people who need emotional and, and social crutches, and they just kind of use it at their convenience? 
Is it a mechanism that keeps people from actually facing reality and actually dealing with real problems? What is Christianity? Is it just really uh, short answers to more complex life and scientific inquiry? What is the faith? And as Christians or as non-Christians, we've typecast Jesus as sort of a false priest. And we don't realize what kind of weight he can bear. Can Jesus handle your real desires, your relational problems or conflict? Can he handle your finance problems or questions? What about scientific inquiry? What about competing philosophies or the various cultures that see God differently? What about sexuality or organizational dynamics? What about debt? What about divorce, remarriage, psychology? Demons or addictions, crimes, hopelessness, depression. What about bitterness? What about global warming? Sickness. Can he handle our society? Can he handle our past, present, and future? What kind of savior is he? What role does he want to play in our life if it's our life at all? If we did a risk assessment of real life, Is Jesus a tool you want in your tool bag? You feel like that sometimes? I feel like that. I'm good when you're feeling bad, but when you have an actual problem, you got to call the real problem solvers, like doctors or attorneys or engineers or... What is Jesus good for? There's a a fun little... uh, uh, phenomenon or theory I've been reading about the last couple of weeks. It's called the risk compensation theory or phenomenon. And it says simply this, that you and I, human beings, we are always assessing perceived danger. We're assessing risk all around us all the time. And we intuit this, and unbeknownst to us, we are in micro and macro ways adjusting our behavior to compensate for the risk that we perceive to be present, right? And often what we do is we swing the pendulum the other way to balance it out, and it results in overcompensation for perceived risk. And the opposite is true, that if we don't perceive enough risk, then we are overconfident and we act reckless and we invite undue harm. And what this theory tells us is that in either case, whether you see too much risk and you hold back, or you don't see enough risk and then you just go for it, in both cases, you invite undue harm onto yourself. A perfect example of this is traffic lights. Right? If you see green, you underassess risk and you start accelerating. So you get speeding tickets or you get into accidents. Because you're not ready for what might have been right around the corner. Or if you are scared of traffic lights and intersections in general freak you out, then you stop at a yellow light and the guy behind you expects you to be going through that light and boom, you have a rear collision. In either case, you've invited undue harm onto yourself as you're trying to manage risk. In other words, if you over analyze and you see too much risk, you're doomed. If you see too little risk, you're doomed. The parallel here is this. If you are a religious person and you tend to 
over-spiritualize. That is, you see a demon where you sh- maybe you should see mental illness or poor planning on your part. And that's a way for you not to actually deal with reality. There's some complex physical, physiological, biological, chemical issues going on. And you're like, I don't want to deal with this. Let's just call it a demon. Do we have to actually solve the problem? Couldn't we just cast out the demon? That'd be a lot easier. And so sometimes for over-spiritualizers, the faith has become a crutch. It's a way, an escape hatch. And you're not actually correctly assessing life. You're not dealing with it. Or... If you are an under-spiritualizing person, then you are overconfident in your own ability to deal with all of life. You think your brain is good enough. You think our government, that's enough of a support system. You trust in your 401k or your portfolio. Is it? Is it enough? What do you need in order to make it, to succeed in life, to be happy? What tools do you need? Oh, I I got everything I need. I got it all right here. I've been planning this for a very long time. And you're not seeing the full picture that you need spirituality, that you need a core that is not just you because you're shaking all the time. And you overcompensate and you blow through the green light and boom, you get a speeding ticket or you get into an accident. So whether you are an over-spiritualizer, which is a very slippery slope, or you under-spiritualize, which is also another spiritually slope, in both cases, you're doomed. And so you hear the word peace, and you say, ah, everything is peace, all peace. I just want peace. And you don't understand what Jesus means by peace, because he, in his mind, understands what life is. And what he's offering to you is not just a sentiment. It's not just a word. Well, what is it? What is Jesus offering? Well, so he begins to engage his disciples. Verse 37 says this. They were startled and frightened and thinking they saw a ghost. Now they see Jesus and they think ghost. And what does this little verse betray about the disciples? That the disciples, just as Jesus had diagnosed, had a falsely dichotomized view of the world. There was the spiritual Jesus when he was alive and he was doing cool things. And then there was real life. They understood that as good Jews, they understood, they believed in the resurrection. But it wasn't in bodily form. It was really just supposed to be the spirit. So they thought, if that's Jesus, it's got to be a ghost. Because that's just spiritual. In other words, their faith and life hadn't converged. And so Jesus shows up in bodily form. But the dude died. Yeah, he died, but God raised him from the dead and that just did not compute. And so Jesus further engages them and he says, why are you troubled? In verse 38. I am in your midst as a physical person, and yet I am God. I am spiritual. I am tangible. I offer you peace, but my peace is robust. And it's relevant. And it's powerful. What about you? What is spirituality to you? Do you just spiritualize ideas like peace? 
Or do you discard it altogether as just, it's just weak sauce. It's not going to really help you in life. And what we see here as Jesus begins to invite his disciples into this more integrated way of looking at the world, he says, peace, the peace that I offer you, it's not just a feeling. It's not just a nicety, but it's the very presence of a person. So what is the presence of Christ? Verse 39 to 43 He says, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of their joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Do you realize how mundane and boring this is? Like, is this a movie you would pay to see? Some dude eating fish. I mean, what's your question? Huh, I wonder what kind of fish that was. And did he, did he eat the head? How, how, how did, how? no, that's boring. That's just mundane. We do that every day. But what's interesting about this, it's is Jesus, the resurrected person. It's the spiritual And the everyday coming together in the person of the resurrected Jesus. When the guy that rose from the dead, who in another version of the story walks through walls, takes fish and eats it, that's a really good movie. That's very, very different. You know how I know this? Because none of us have ever done this. I know scientists tell us we're mostly space. You know, we have more space than matter because matter is mostly space. And we should, in theory, be able to walk through walls because walls are mostly space as well. I don't know. I'm not going to try it. I once, in Bellevue, walked into a plate of glass. It really, really hurt. I don't want to try it again. But here Jesus is meeting them exactly where they're at, in their place of confusion, in their place of dichotomized views, and he invites them to test out their so-called faith. The woundedness that you have, Jesus is saying, I have it too. It's real. I'm not just some spirit that doesn't feel things. I was wounded. Touch my hands. Feel my feet. Put your hand in my side. I bled, I died, I'm palpable. So he invites them, not just into their pain, but into his pain, his scars. Oh, do you sometimes feel like a victim? I was victimized. I was falsely tried. And I was put to death for crimes I did not commit. For a misunderstanding, they killed me. Oh, yeah, you want victory in your life? Me too. I want to win sometimes. I want to feel like a winner. All of your mysticism and worldviews and religiosity, see it, touch it, feel it, eat it, fully engages them in life and matters of life and death. And what's happening right here is Jesus, the one who had promised peace before, promises peace again and says, you didn't know 
what I was saying when I first promised you peace. I was promising you not just a thing, but me. I'm going to come into your life. I'm going to be your peace. You're never ever going to be alone ever again. I'm going to die the death you should die for the penalty of sins that you committed. I will pay all of the price. You don't have to atone for your sins relationally, psychologically, financially. I'm going to absorb it all into my person. And then for that, I will die. And then God is going to put the Holy Spirit in my body and it's going to raise my body up from the dead. And that's called redemption. Using bad things and all things for the good. Turns a symbol of death into a symbol of life. And that very same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, I'm going to now give to you to be in you. When Jesus was going away, he said, I'm with you, that's great. But it's better for you that I go away because if I do, then I'm going to be in you. That's the peace he's promising. The very presence of a person. And he says, I am able to bear the full weight of life. Test me, touch me, see me, and know this. Oh yeah, give me some fish, just like you. I will eat it, just like you. You will know that I am trustworthy, that there is relevance to me. You know, often when I... uh, in the past when I was struggling through working out my faith, one of the sticking points for me was this question of the cross. I grew up in a Presbyterian church, and in the Presbyterian tradition, they have a lot of songs about blood. Like blood flowing and blood shedding and being covered in blood. Like that's gory. Like why do I... It's so graphic. It's like a Stephen King novel. Why the cross? Why is that necessary? Why do Christians obsess about the blood? What's the big deal? It's gross. Haven't you wondered that when you are exploring the faith? Animal sacrifice? Why? What did the poor little lamb ever do to you? What's, what's with the blood? Back to a few Susie's stories. Over the course of our marriage, uh, I have five particular points that really have uh, helped to overcome my doubts. And it gave, it's given me great implicit trust in uh, Susie, who she is, and what we are together as a married couple. I'm going to go through this quick, but I think it's kind of fun. Number one, the first month and a half that we were married, we were living in Fort Lee, New Jersey, across the Hudson uh, from New York City. And I came home after work to find Susie cooking dinner. She was over the stove cooking something in a frying pan. And in my just first year of marriageness, I naively, completely innocently announced to Susie that I had made the decision that, and I had set in motion that day that we were going to sell the house and move from Fort Lee, New Jersey to South Hamilton, Massachusetts. Yeah, how do you think that went over? <laughs> Silence. And then she took the frying pan. <laughs> and slam! Food and grease and sparks went flying. And I just thought, oh 
my goodness, what is going on? And you know what the lesson was? That she responded to my stupidity with strength and with follow through because she absorbed that horrible process and horrible decision and she went along with it without holding it over me in the seasons that were to come. Second part, uh, second point in marriage. When I was church planting, I worked really hard, but Susie worked even harder because she was trying to make a living for us while I was out there, take, you know, uh, trying to negotiate high-risk maneuvers ministry-wise as a uh, married person, as a pregnant person, and then as a mom. I remember just stories of her being so tired and then pumping breast milk all day at work and then storing it in the fridge and just, you know, figuring out how to do this working full-time thing while being a mom married to a church-planting pastor who was making very little money. Remember her doing this, just semester after semester after semester. For years she did this, and I just remember thinking, wow, she has responded to my adventures with utmost diligence and willingness to suffer for us. And that helped to overcome some of my doubts. Point number three, we went through a very difficult pregnancy with our third child, and Uh, We didn't sleep for several months because it was so, so challenging. One of the most difficult things we've ever gone through as a couple. And I remember having these out-of-body experiences where I'm just in agony. And then I see her just processing this with uh, a kind of poise and resilience that amazed me. And I thought, wow, she can handle a lot. Who is this person? And she was doing that, not just as a dad, as a dude, but as as a mom. And I just imagine that that's a whole other level. And there are facets to that that, as a guy, I just will never understand. And all the women said, amen. (laughs) Or number four, when I brought, as Peter sung, the wounded idealist, I brought, I thrust upon her all of the weight of my idealism and, and my desire for happiness. And I wanted to extract all of the answers to the universe out of her right before we went to bed. And time and time and time again, as I berated her and, and was annoying her and bothering her, she'd fall asleep while I was pe- speaking. Showing me that in the midst of all of this persecution, she's able to normalize what I was bringing to her and act with wisdom by falling asleep, demonstrating acceptance by waking up in the morning giving me a kiss. Who is this woman? I asked. And she did that for about 10 years. It was just this regular thing of me trying to answer all of my heart's questions through her. Because clearly, she is the key to my unhappiness. Because if only she would change, the universe would be well. And then number five, 
the, 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 the biggest thing that I notice now is that for 17 years, she's been there for me and for the family and in the mundanity of the daily chores and tasks and all the ins and outs of being mom and being leader and being somebody who's holding down the fort. She's proven her faithfulness daily, again and again and again and then again. And my concluding thought is, she has the kind of engineering that is able to bear the weight of our life together. And I trust her implicitly. She can take on the weight. But how do I know this? How did I come to this conclusion? It's, it's implicit now. I don't think about it anymore. I don't ask the question, can Susie handle this? I never ask that anymore. How come? The common thread in these five stories is the fact that she was willing to suffer for me. She was willing to die daily for me. She was willing to absorb whatever I had to put out. That is what finally convinced me on a deep, deep level. And so we go back to the question, why the cross? Why the shedding of blood, the tearing of flesh? Why does Jesus say, I have flesh and bones? But that's not what he says. No, it's not just that he has flesh and bones, but it's that they're wounded. See, it's the fact that he suffered for me that allows me to say, Jesus is trustworthy. And through the cross, through his wounds, Jesus is saying, I'm not just a philosophy. I'm not just a backdrop to real life. I'm not just an ideal. I'm not just a set of rules. I'm not just some principle or wisdom to be had. But I am visceral. I'm tangible. I'm actual. And I can and I am willing to bear the weight of your life even unto death. Now, that helps me a lot. And there have been times in my life when all of the logic and all of the science and all of the research that I do doesn't do it for me. And I'm just talking about my research uh, of the Bible. But it's the person of Jesus that keeps me coming back. And the disciples had this moment as well. When all of these other disciples left and Jesus turned to his 12 and he said, will you leave me also? And they said, where else will we go? You alone have the words of life. And that's often been my sentiment that Jesus, the person, Jesus, the tangible, Jesus, the actual is also Jesus, the spiritual. And he, for me, makes life livable. Now, the cross is great because it proves his love for me. That's fantastic. But without the resurrection, the cross is just an intention. It's just some guy who means well, and then he got himself killed while meaning well. That is, there is love and there is sacrifice, but it's without actual 
power. It doesn't reach into our real life today to be helpful and effective today by itself. And so on the one hand, as Christians, we believe in the cross because that testifies to his love and it made a way for God to forgive us by being the substitution for our sins. He died instead of us. But that remains a sentiment unless, on the other hand, we have the cross. And the cross says the same spirit that raised this dead body from the dead, that redeemed that whole situation, is now available to you. And your life can be redeemed because the person of Jesus can be present in your life. And so when Jesus offers peace, he's not just offering the cross, but he's also offering his very presence. Heaven touches earth in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cross allows us, along with the resurrection, to not avoid the cross, but to be able to go through the cross, that is, through the blood, through the realities of life. If you just have the cross, you can't face life because inevitably life will death end in death and the shedding of blood. If you have just the resurrection, you're not engaging in actual bloody, messy life. But together you have the spiritual and the physical coming together. And this is the cornerstone of the Christian faith, embodied in the risen Lord who eats broiled fish. That's a good movie. Let me conclude here. Jesus' death and resurrection acknowledges, and listen to me right now if you are going through a hard time, Jesus' death and resurrection acknowledges, validates, and embraces the physicality and the realness of life and spirituality. If you are going through a challenging time, whatever questions you're asking, consider Jesus. If the church bothers you, forget the church. Consider Jesus. I think you would consider him well as a strategy through the church. But if that's too much for you, just take Jesus as he is. At minimum. Because he meets us in our world of flesh and bones. Our world of needs and hopes and pain and confusion. Frustration, sickness, conflict and problems. He does. I want to give you three application points and then we'll call it a sermon. Okay, first is the church. I want to invite you to try out church. Because where does the physical and the spiritual come together here on earth? The institutional way to experience that is the local church. This is where, where people come together and they're able to have an opportunity to do life together. Where we get to maybe keep each other honest. To be support and challenge one to the other, to be regularly reminded to gain perspective, 
to have wisdom and then practice wisdom. It happens in the local church. And if you've given up on local church, I understand there are many, many valid reasons why you should never come back, but yet here you are. And I invite you to consider it beyond today. Secondly, I want you to consider suffering. That life is found through the cross. It's not around it. Real life doesn't avoid pain or suffering. That if you truly are a some uh, person who considers themselves a spiritual person, then you of all people should be the most honest and practical and hopeful. Because according to scripture, the citizens of heaven should make the very best citizens of earth. But the opposite is often true, that the world judges Christians to be not so good at dealing with reality. They see Christians spouting faith and giving unthoughtful answers. And they're quick to the draw with solutions. What we see in Jesus is somebody who steps into people's suffering, knows how to weep with the best of them, who's able to cry in the presence of death and pain, as he did at the tomb of Lazarus, and yet have hope. So consider, if you are a Christian, how to suffer well, so that the way you suffer becomes a point of attraction for those around you. And it automatically should be if you serve the risen Christ. If you are a non-Christian, consider your suffering. Do you know how to suffer well? Does your deconstructed one plus one equals two all the time view of the world result in your ability to handle all of the weight of life? Do you have within yourself and in your visible surroundings the ability to bear the weight of life? I want to submit to you that maybe, maybe you also need a savior, at the very least, a really, really good friend who loves you better than you can love yourself so that you're not extracting all of the answers of the universe from yourself or from your friends. Lastly, I want you to consider your doubts. All of us have doubts. Disciples certainly had many doubts. And Jesus addressed them and he validated the presence of doubts. Doubts are part of the process. They're normal. Doubt isn't antithetical to faith. Doubt is the precursor to faith because doubt is what allows us to ask questions. If you start with certainty, you end up in doubt. If you start with doubt, you end with certainty. And so doubts are okay. On the same note, you got to test your doubts. That's what Jesus did. He allowed them to be confused. He didn't get angry at them for not believing in him. What more could he have done? He showed up from the dead. But he says, touch me. Put your finger in my side. It's an invitation. I understand your skepticism, he says. But try it out. Doubt your doubts, because not all doubts are sincere. 
Because we're not all sincere people, not all the time. We have lots of convenient psychological things going on in our life. There's all sorts of ways that we are escaping reality. And sometimes it's by stating we have doubt. For example, does God exist? Some of you are asking that. I don't know. Try praying. See what happens. Try it out. We sing these songs to this God that you don't believe in, so you won't sing. How do you know? Sing those words. At worst, in worst case scenario, you're singing some mediocre music with a bunch of people who are delusional. That's worst case scenario. Sing. Engage in the words. Pray to a God you don't believe in. See what happens. Doubt your doubts. How do you know? You are upset at the church. You have history with the church. Well, maybe you were part of the equation also. Maybe it's not all just them. Come, try it out. Come back to church next week. We're going to have Seattle's first quarterback, Jim Zorn, speaking to us next week, partnering with me. He's going to teach us how to throw a football. (laughs) He asked me today, can we get rid of the first row of seats? I said to him, do you need a football? And he said, no, I got football. (laughs) Try it out. What doubts do you have? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Have you done the research? Is the Bible full of fallacy and it's just myths and poetry? Most people who say that have never read the Bible. Try it out. Read it cover to cover. Then make a decision. So doubt your doubts. Here Jesus is in our midst, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, embodying the church, sent out as missionaries to engage a very real and very messy world. And I'm so glad we're not doing that in our own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Would you pray with me? God, show yourself to us today as you revealed yourself to your disciples. And I pray that we may have faith that works and works that demonstrate our faith. Draw us to yourself, we pray, in Jesus' name.